Well, as we continue in this Lenten season, like Stefan was telling us, we're journeying to the cross, and from now until Easter, we'll be working our way through John's gospel and taking stops with Jesus along the way. I encourage you again, if you didn't start last week, you can still do it this week, that over this Lenten season to really dive into the gospel of John, to let Jesus speak to you, to see with your own eyes as you read what Jesus does, and you'll find that it is so very, very good to be in God's word. Now this week, we're looking at the Samaritan woman at the well, who is Nicodemus's, who we looked at last week, complete mirror image. Nicodemus was a man, a Jew, and a respected member of society who came to Jesus by night. And he spoke a lot using the word we, like the Samaritan woman does too. But by way of contrast, our story today, we find a woman who is a Samaritan, a marginal member of society, and she encounters Jesus in broad daylight. But just like the story from last week with Nicodemus, our story today begins as a conversation between just two individuals. And as the conversation progresses, we get the feeling that just like Nicodemus seemed to represent the, the Jews, that was weird, <laughs> she represents all of Samaria, all of the world really. Now, a little bit of background knowledge. The Samaritans were not simply descendants of Jacob, like she says. Their ancestry was actually quite mixed. We see in 2 Kings chapter 17 that the Assyrians, who conquered the region in 722-721 BC, brought colonists from five foreign nations in Samaria. And what happened was this issue of intermarriage continued to cloud the relationships between the Jews and the Samaritans. And at the time that Jesus was there, Herod had actually followed that pattern of colonization by settling thousands of foreigners in the Samaritan capital and area. Only now the Samaritans simply just lived alongside the foreigners. They didn't intermarry with them. They just lived with them. So you could say that the woman's personal history of marriage to five husbands and the cohabitation with the six actually parallels the whole history of Samaria so far. But because the Samaritans had this historical connection to the people of Israel, their faith was a combination of commands and rituals that they got from the law of Moses, put together with various superstitions that they had. They didn't recognize, per se, in the Old Testament, anything past the Torah or the first five books. And so most of the Jews in Jesus' time simply despised the Samaritans. They disliked them even more than Gentiles because they were religiously speaking, from their point of view, just these half-breeds who had an eclectic, mongrel faith. There was a deadly hatred that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. So much so that when the Samaritans built the temple to Yahweh on Mount Gerizim, the Jews burned it down. And this made relationships with the Jews and the Samaritans not very good. And so you see in the text that the road where Jesus was going would be a lot shorter if he cut through Samaria. But most Jews would go around. They would avoid it because never would they walk through that place. Now before we dive in, I got to remind us also of one more thing. At the time, a rabbi would not speak with a woman in public, not even with his own wife. So for a Jewish person to be in Samaria, to be talking to a woman, and to be asking for something, 
This is very interesting, to say the least. But just like we saw last week with Nicodemus, Jesus had something to say about the religious establishment of the day. He had something to say to those like Nicodemus who thought they already knew everything about God and how God works. And what we will find today with the woman at the well is that Jesus has something also to say to those who have been despised by the religious establishment, to those who have felt that they are on the outside, outside of the love of God. And so with those in the back of our minds, let's enter into the text like we've been doing. Now, we don't do this so that we don't have to read the Bible. We do it so that as we enter into God's word and read, we're recognizing that there's more than just words. That by putting ourselves into the story, we can experience things that just reading we won't always find. So if you have your Bible and you wish to follow along in your Bible, it'll be John chapter 4. If not, the words will be up on the screen to guide us. But I'm not going to always read them, but I want them there as just a reminder that they're there for you to look at. And so here we are, right? We're at the well. We have come with Jesus this way through Samaria because of need. Though the need is not because of travel and we're looking to save a couple of minutes, but because there are people who need to hear what Jesus has to say. And for today, let's have ourselves kind of standing off to the side. Last time we were with Nicodemus as he chatted. This time, let's be kind of off to the side. We know that it's about noon. It's very hot. And we see Jesus and his disciples. They've been walking for quite some time, and we see them arrive here. And they stop a little bit away from the well, and they're talking. And the group of disciples makes their way to go on. And Jesus, we see him say, I'm a little bit tired, fellas. I'm going to sit down while you go and try to find something to eat. So the disciples leave him. And as they're pushing their way into the town, they walk right past this woman who's walking. They don't stop or move to the side for her. Instead, she does because that's the custom. They are Jews, they are men, and she is a Samaritan and a woman. So she is the one who moves to the side. And they pass on, and she makes her way to the well with her bucket that she's going to draw the water with. And we watch her. We watch this woman as she slowly makes her way to the well where no one else is going to be except Jesus is there, but she's not expecting anyone to be there. So we watch on her face as it's a little bit of surprise that she sees someone sitting at the well. And then we hear Jesus ask for a drink of water. And we watch as she looks around and realizes that, yes, Jesus is talking to her. And she says in a very, like, shocked way, you talking to me? No, she doesn't do that. But she looks around and says, are you talking to me? You're asking me for a drink. And as we look, we can tell that she's an older woman. She has not had an altogether reputable past. But apparently she's open to talking to strangers. We're going to find that she's very quick-witted and that she can take very serious things and turn them into jokes. But we look closely at her eyes and we can see that how she carries herself, that there, deep somewhere inside of her, is a desire for something more than the life that she currently has. And so we listen as Jesus answers her. He doesn't answer her angrily like we would have expected for someone who is tired and hungry and thirsty. But instead, Jesus is very gentle and calm and then tells her that if she knew who he was, she would be the one asking for the drink. She, like I said, is very quick-witted and points out how foolish he is since he doesn't have anything to draw water with. And 
it doesn't make any sense for her to ask him anything ever because he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, he's a rabbi, she's a woman. And so to make sure that this conversation with this strange man sitting at the well is over, she says, are you greater than Jacob, Mr. Fancy Pants? So much so that I'm the one who should be asking you for water? That's how great you are? And just to put it into context, not only is Jacob pretty great, but this well is actually pretty important in scriptures as well. It's here at this well where Abraham first came when he arrived to Cana from Babylonia and renewed the promise of God giving the land to him and to his descendants. It's here that Abram built the altar and called upon the name of the Lord. It's here where Jacob came safely when he returned with his wives and children with his, from his sojourn from Laban. This is where Jacob bought the piece of land from a Canaanite for a hundred pieces of silver. This is where Jacob built an altar to the Lord. This was the plot of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. This is the place where Joseph came back to be eventually be buried when his bones were taken back from Egypt. This is the place where Joshua made a covenant with Israel, renewing their commitment to the God of Israel and saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is a special place. But Jesus isn't offended again by her tone. He doesn't try to stop the conversation. Instead, he keeps going. Again, not arrogantly, but very matter-of-factly, he says that all who drink this water will be thirsty again. No matter how important you think this place is, it's just a place, and it's just water. But the water he offers is living water, and a person will never thirst again. And this, I think, is the first place where we can kind of pause for a moment in this story, because it is very common for people to try to satisfy their God-created inner thirst through different things. Because every human being is thirsty. We want, we long, we search, we reach. Each of us learns to become masters of distracting and numbing ourselves to fulfill that thirst convincing ourselves that just one more and then we'll be satisfied, knowing all along it's never just one more, but only what Jesus gives and offers can satisfy that deep, deep peace in our soul and our spirit, and only Jesus can offer us continual connection that comes without limit. And so here in this moment where we pause, we silently ask for the Lord that in his mercy, that he would take away those things that we are trying to use to fill our thirst. And we would ask that he would fill us instead, that he would quench our thirst, that he would meet us right where we are and give to us what we need. jump back in the text and we see that the woman is very quick-witted again and she says very offhandedly hmm, give me some of that water because I'm tired of coming here and we laugh because she's kind of funny but we laugh because we try to hide in humor quite a bit we use humor, humor as a thing to hide behind she leaves out of course why she would come at this hour she leaves out the shame she feels for who she has become. 
She comes at this hour, not early in the morning when everyone else is getting water to escape the gossip, the judging looks. She comes because this is when she has to come because it's easier to be alone than to deal with people who do not accept her. It's easier to be alone because who could understand what she has experienced? And we feel her sorrow, her loneliness, the chaos of her life, her having to do just what she has to do just to survive. And almost as if the game is over, Jesus is ready to get real and he speaks to her and says, go call your husband. And we see her and we see the look in her eyes and we hear as she slowly answers Jesus and it cuts her. So she forces that smile that maybe you know how to make and says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, that's true. You've had five and the one you have is not your husband. And Jesus holds her eyes. And she doesn't look away. She knows that he knows, that he knows everything. Who's to blame, all the messiness, all the desperation, all her shame, all her guilt. And I think in that moment, maybe he looks over at us as well and knows ours too. As if in the story, he could look over and call us out as well. But we see that the woman is no pushover. She doesn't let herself cry. She's used to standing up for herself. And so we watch as I think she stands and she straightens out her dress and says, okay, Mr. Know-it-all, then answer this. And gives him a question to an answer she knows he cannot give, a question of national importance. Whether people should worship at the Jewish sanctuary in Jerusalem or the Samaritan holy place at Gerizim. And he can't answer because if he does, and he says that you must worship in the temple, he in a way limits God and denies the history of what has happened in this place. But if he says you can worship on your mountain, then he denies what the Jews are teaching. And it's in this moment that I think she has him now. She feels that she has successfully evaded the issues about her husband, successfully evaded the issues about her current way of living, and makes it a question about worshiping at a place rather than who they are worshiping. She has successfully saved face. Because she's funny and witty, but above all, she is self-preserving. And this is where I found myself seeing myself in her. Because we all know how to self-preserve. We all know how. We all have taken steps to make sure that we survive. To do what we have to do to spare ourselves pain, discomfort, have learned to do whatever it takes to cut ourselves off from harm and discomfort. And we pause here because self-preservation is exhausting. But can you risk giving it up? That is an important question. Can you risk trusting Jesus? And what would that even look like? Jesus doesn't take her bait, but instead speaks to her in the same way he spoke to Nicodemus. Moves her from earthly things to heavenly things. Gently and confidently says, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you don't know because you don't have all the truth. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming. 
has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That's what the Father is looking for. We spend so much time focusing on earthly things like places that we forget that Jesus shows us more. To worship in spirit means you are concerned with the spiritual realities, not fixing your mind on places or outward appearances, superstitions, or fixed thinking. In spirit, we are to become connected to Jesus Christ, to be born of water and spirit, to come to understand that this faith should look like the fruit of the spirit. And so truth goes with it because we worship according to the whole word of God, not the bits and pieces we like, but all of it. That means we come to the truth of who each one of us is, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, man or woman, each one of us sinner in need of a savior. And I think very surprisingly, the woman at the well gets it. I think that this is what she has been searching for. But self-preservation is very strong and hard to break. She might understand it, but she is still uncertain. Why? Because he is a rabbi. He is a Jew. He has knowledge, but does he have love? What about acceptance? What about forgiveness? What about all the times that men have failed her in her life? What about all the times her family has let her down, her community? has wronged her all the times that people have let her down. So I think she looks down and away from Jesus and says, when the Messiah comes, all will be settled. He will tell me. And I wonder how much time passed until Jesus takes a deep breath, not out of pity, but out of compassion. The way that you look at your child, your spouse, your, your friend, when you're so very proud of them. You look at them with great love and, and not, not really joy, but you, you know what I'm talking about. You have that look at them. Jesus, well, Jesus says, I am he. And she looks at him because what that means, what that I am he, it means I accept you. It means I love you. And I have come to you. You who have been mistreated, you who have been abused, you who have been broken, you who have been cast off and left to fend for yourself, I see you and I know you and I love you and I am your Messiah. And he says it to each one of us as well, masters of self-preservation, that we are. He looks at us and says, I accept you, I love you, and I have come for you. I see you. I know you. I love you. And that's probably a pretty good moment to stop, but there is so much more in this story. As the band is coming up, don't forget what happens next. The disciples come back. They're shocked because he's talking to a woman, but they don't want to say anything, so they talk about food. And he's like, did someone bring him a sandwich when we weren't looking? What happened? And Jesus looks at them and says, food, why are you talking about food? You have a saying, right? Four more months to harvest, which as Mark Twain put it, never put off till tomorrow. What may be done the day after tomorrow, just as well. He says, why are you procrastinating? Why are you waiting? There is work to do. This is the very reason why we are here. We have come. 
Because look, there are those who do not know. And what do the disciples look up and see? They see the woman leading people from the town to come back to Jesus so that those people can see, those people can hear the message. They can receive what Jesus alone can give. The woman who is so impressed by the love of Jesus, who has found that she has been loved, accepted, cared for just as she is, that the Messiah himself has come directly for her, goes back to all of those people who treated her so poorly and doesn't care anymore because there's something bigger than what has happened to her and says, come and see, come and hear this man. And the result in chapter 42 is that they come, or in verse 42, is that they come to believe as well. Because he is the Savior of the world. And how beautiful will it be when each one of us leaves knowing that the Messiah, who has called each of us by name, runs out and begins to speak that to those who don't yet know so that they can turn around and say, we no longer believe because of what has happened to you and what you have said. We believe because we know and it has happened to us as well. Make no mistake. That is why we come ready to reap the harvest because we have been saved each one of us. And it is time to go and tell and live about the Savior who transcends all differences of place, style, nationality, and everything else you could think of. The Savior who comes for each one of us.